You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. We've been studying First Peter uh, as a letter written to a pre-Christian context. The gospel has not taken hold of any part of the Roman Empire. Churches are small, usually, and very scattered. And we've been seeing how wonderfully this applies to the Christian church in a post-Christian world. And in many ways, the paganism that surrounded these early Christians is uh, upon us again, uh, many different indications of that. Um, you only need to watch a, a top-class European soccer game uh, to realize that the number of tattooed men has increased exponentially, and this is seen in our society as, as completely normal uh, because everybody is doing it. But when you reflect in history, uh, who were the last people to tattoo themselves or look throughout the world and ask who are the people who tattoo themselves? They are the pagans, the, the people described by Paul in Romans 1.18 who have confused the creature with the creator. And because we are made to worship and even though we run from the God whom we have been created to worship, we remain worshiping beings. And so all we have left to worship is the earth, the whales, and our own bodies to, in our own eyes, beautify our own bodies as though God had not made us already as His image. We, we cover that image in, indelibly. It is a very painful thing to have tattoos removed. And we live in a world that doesn't see anything unusual about that, doesn't know enough about world history to know that's the kind of thing pagans do. They turn downwards and inwards and southwards instead of Godwards. And so there are all kinds of subtle signs, and, and that's simply one of the subtle signs, that we're living in a world that is increasingly like the world of the first century. And so uh, this section of God's Word, all of God's Word is profitable for teaching, reproving, correcting, and training in righteousness but there are different parts of God's Word, which is why it comes in different genres with different emphases that apply to the people of God in different places at different times in very special ways. And Peter, you remember, begins his letter with a doxology of praise to God for his regeneration and his preservation. These are the the two things you need to know to be a Christian in a post-Christian world. 
the power of the gospel to bring about new life and regeneration, and the power of God. Passage was cited already in church this morning, the power of God to keep us for that which he is keeping for us in heaven. And he ends it, as the apostles end all their letters, with a little word of greeting. And in between, he is doing two things. Number one, he is exhorting us to lives of holiness, lives of distinctiveness. And he is encouraging us to face and endure the suffering that is inevitable when God's people live lives of holiness. And we're in that second section in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, where Peter takes up his statement in 3, verse 18, which he had elaborated on in one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament, and he returns to this principle, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. A number of years ago in the church I served in South Carolina, we received an unusual request in the church office, I think on a Thursday afternoon or a Friday morning, someone planning to come to the morning service who was inquiring whether it was okay as far as our church was concerned if he carried a concealed weapon. I was tempted to say that our congregation dealt with our ministers in a much gentler and kinder way uh, than to carry concealed weapons. It so happens it's illegal in the state of South Carolina to carry an unconcealed weapon unless you have a permit to do so, unless you are allowed to pack heat, which one or two members of our congregation, as I discovered with their bare hugs, were actually doing. Illegal to carry a concealed weapon. But Peter is saying here, using a metaphor that's used on a number of occasions in the New Testament, that there is a concealed weapon that every Christian needs to carry all of the time. 
He uses the kind of language Paul uses in Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, when he says to these spread Christians, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves. Have this weapon by developing the same attitude which you find in Jesus Christ, because the person who is willing to suffer in his body is the person who is done with sin. In other words, the Apostle Peter is encouraging these Christians that if they're going to live in a, in a pre-Christian world, if we are going to live in a post-Christian world in a way that is honoring to God, we need to have the right weapons. We need to, in his language here, have the right mindset. We need to be able to think clearly about the world in which we live and about what it means for us to be Christians. In a sense, this is the same teaching as Paul gives so marvelously at the beginning of Romans 12, when he tells us that the transformation of our lives as Christians is the consequence of the renewing of our minds, the development of a new mindset, a new way of thinking about the world, a new attitude and disposition. And that isn't something that Christians gain simply by saying, I'm going to have a new mindset. The way Christians gain that, and this is the whole point of Peter's letter, is by submitting ourselves to the teaching of God's Word. Because a new mindset in the Christian life is not in our power simply to decide that we're going to have it. It needs to be created in us. It needs to be woven progressively into the way we think about everything. It needs to be crafted into the lenses through which we view life. Because, of course, the most, the most delicate instrument in our lives that we use is, is not actually our eyes, or for that matter, our hearing and our ears. It's our mind. Think about the person who is depressed, and you seek to encourage them to think differently about their situation. But the problem is that the the, the disease of their depression has so taken hold of their mindset that they, they've lost the power to transform their way of thinking. And the same is true of everything in the Christian life. This is why the Christian life is lived on the basis that it's what comes into us from the Word of God that transforms us so that what comes out of us may conform to the Word of God. We are transformed not by the heightening of our emotions, although they may be stretched by God's Word, but by the illumination, the instruction, the submission, the information, the fresh perspectives, the attitudes of God's Word slowly transforming our vision of everything, of Him, of the Word, 
of our world, of our Savior, and of ourselves. And it's within that context that Peter is emphasizing this principle, that the person who is prepared to suffer for Jesus Christ is the person who will be done with sin. Or, to put it very simply, because he uses Jesus as the great illustration here, Jesus suffered rather than disobeyed. The Christian is the person who, when he or she is willing to suffer for the gospel, will be the person who will always choose obedience over disobedience. And there's something poignant about the fact that this is the teaching of the Apostle Peter. Uh, One one can almost sense that uh, when he and Silas, who was writing the letter, uh, were talking together perhaps uh, in a little break because writing was very arduous work in those days, that maybe Silas uh, said to him at this point, this really came from your heart, didn't it, Peter? I know it all comes from your heart. But... uh, etched into your life are times when you preferred to disobey rather than to suffer for Jesus Christ. Uh, Sin manifests itself in, in very individualistic ways in our lives. The devil gets us often at our weak points, and Peter's weak point was frankly this, that he talked big, but inwardly he was small. He talked about bravery and boldness, but inwardly it it covered his cowardice. And there had been occasions in his life when he had chosen disobedience rather than suffering. Or perhaps even chosen isn't quite enough to describe what he experienced. You know, we do choose what we're going to do. But that choice is often simply an expression of of our deepest instincts. It It was Peter's deepest instinct when faced with the choice, obedience or suffering, to choose obedience rather than suffering. And what he's doing here in this letter is so providing instruction from the gospel for us, so pouring the truth of the gospel into us so that that will create instincts in us that will lead to us choosing to suffer rather than to disobey. Because, of course, this is the level at which we we live the Christian life. We don't live the Christian life on the basis of carrying Young's analytical concordance under one arm and our Bible under the other, and in every situation looking up the concordance to see if there's a text that will help us. We live the Christian life on the basis of our instincts becoming biblical, of them being shaped and fashioned to become Jesus-like so that even when we wrestle with the issue, which of course Jesus Himself did in the Garden of Gethsemane, our instinct will always be obedience to the Father, even if that means suffering for ourselves. And so we need to, we do need always, the world will never notice it, 
we always need to be carrying concealed weapons. And Peter is teaching us here, I want you to notice, in, in three different things that he says. He's, he's beginning to shape and fashion our mindset so that we have the mind of Jesus Christ, so that sinners though we are, we understand why it is that obedience is to be preferred, even if it means suffering. Now, what are these three things that he's teaching us? The first is this in verses 2 and 3. It is that we are no longer the people we once were. Now, this, of course, is common New Testament teaching. We are no longer the people we once were. If anyone is in Christ, then that person is part of a new creation. The old has passed away. It's gone. The new has come. And the way he puts it here is by dividing our lives, who are Christians, into two times. There is the past time, and there is the remaining time. There is the past time up to the point when I became a Christian, and there is the remaining time until I'm taken from this world into the presence of Jesus Christ. And what he says is this. He says, I want you, by God's grace, to develop an attitude forged by the gospel that makes you look on the lifestyle of that past time as a time that was wasted. And he describes what that past time was. It really was a pretty pagan time, wasn't it? Uh, he, he lists the, the lifestyle of the world in which obviously some at least of these believers had been involved when they had done what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery and lust and drunkenness and orgies and carousing and detestable idolatry. Or in a word, what the world calls having a good time. It never ceases to amaze me to listen in public places to, to usually groups of men, but not exclusively groups of men, describing how they're going to go out at the weekend, and they're going to get drunk out of their minds and have a really good time. And this is, this is how many in the world count having a really good time. Sexual immorality and idolatry. Lust for things rather than desire for God. And believing, and this is the staggering thing, believing that this is having a really good time. I don't know whether this language is used nowadays, but it was used in my youth about, about young women, that she was a good time girl, where good time meant the very reverse of what it means in the Bible. It meant she was sexually loose, but she was having a good time. And the more you keep your eye open when you read the newspapers about uh, 
well-known people who have the, the, the good life, and, and you see what a, what a tragic mess they make of it, how few of them are able to sustain stable relationships. But they are the gods and goddesses of the world in which we live. I happened to watch uh, something from Glastonbury uh, the other week. Some of you have no idea what Glastonbury is. Uh, I, was, I was almost flabbergasted by the adoration of the fans, of the mirage of a person, usually with unusual talent, let's put it this way, some of them with unusual talent, about whom we know nothing except that they are the idols to be worshipped. And woe betide you if you are part of the set, if you don't worship them. Woe betide you if you, if you probe about the real happiness of life that is so contrary to the way in which God constructed us to have happiness. It's not, it's not an incidental thing in the Bible that particularly sexual immorality goes along with idolatry, that it goes along with a lust for the worship of the wrong gods or goddesses. And the simple message that Peter is giving to these Christians who live very much in that kind of world and some of them who actually were converted out of that kind of world is. Now that your eyes have been opened by the gospel, don't you feel that that whole escapade was a total waste of your time? And you can never recover it. You can never rewrite into those years, this is for the glory of God and for my eternal happiness. Those of you who are my generation, remember Malcolm Muggeridge? Uh, his name came into my, uh, my ken just the other day, an email from a friend who had preached in a church where Malcolm Muggeridge's uh, granddaughter, I think, had brought her father, who was in a wheelchair, to the church of which my friend was preaching. Malcolm, Malcolm Muggeridge was, was one of the most cynical and sarcastic and extraordinarily funny men you could ever think to meet. He did not live for the gospel, but his son was brought to faith and prayed for him. And he came to some kind of faith, and there is his son, his, his grandchildren. Amazing. But those of you who are my generation, you remember what the title of his autobiography was? Chronicle of Wasted Years. And, um, you know, sometimes some of us who've never known a day in our lives when we didn't know Jesus, and, and sometimes we foolishly say, I, I, wish I'd, I wish I'd really been out in the world and, and really had a great experience of conversion. You don't, you don't, you don't ever want to think that. Because those, those who did and do blush with shame, as Paul says in Romans 6, at the very memory of the way they used to live and the terrible waste 
because time is so precious and you can't go back and redo it. And you see, this is part of what the Bible means by repentance. In the Bible, repentance is not that you have a bad feeling about yourself. That may be conviction of sin, but it's not repentance. Repentance is the transformation of your mindset that makes you see sin in the light of God's holiness and mercy and yourself in the light of the way in which you may have wasted the years of your life living for self, living for your own desires, for your own lusts, living a life of idolatry, any kind of idolatry. The glossy magazines, they're full of idolatry. They exist to encourage idolatry, don't they? When you know zero point something percent of the population can afford what you see in the glossy magazines, the only thing they exist for is to cause your desire to aspire for something other than the God who created you and wants to bless you and you become mesmerized. But oh, when the gospel touches you, says Peter, you begin to see that you are no longer the person you once were. And as the Apostle Paul says about his past life, I just count it all as so much garbage by comparison with knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. And if we're going to stand in a a world that is post-Christian, that in all its subtle and unsubtle ways opposes our Christian faith and the gospel, we've got to be absolutely convinced of that. Utterly convinced that without Christ, your time is under the aegis of eternity, utterly wasted in the pursuit of lasciviousness and idolatry and sexual immorality. But then as he moves on, he has something else to say now in the verses that follow, in verse 4 particularly. We need to know that we are no longer the person we once were. And we also need to be aware that we no longer belong the way we once did. Peter is writing to Uh, these Christians in different parts of modern Turkey. And you remember one of the ways in which he describes them is as alien residents. Um, You live here, but you don't really belong here. You're resident here, but you need to understand that because of who you now are in Jesus Christ, you're always going to be different. And that means you're always going to stand out as different in the crowd. And you will no longer belong. And it will affect everything you do. I may have told you before my favorite uh, little personal joke in the United States when we lived there was to get into an elevator going up many floors in a building, engage the people in conversation, and usually even Americans who are not slow to be fast 
just as you were leaving, would pluck up the courage to say, where do you come from? And I used to love walking out the elevator, turning around and saying, Columbia, South Carolina, and seeing the, the looks of total, maybe horror, but let's just call it astonishment on the faces, because their minds were thinking, you don't belong there, you don't sound like those people. And it's the same with the Christian. You know, we smell, there is an aroma that comes from us as Christians. You know, sometimes a Christian, you can watch it. I have some friends like this, they walk into the room and the room lights up because of, because of the way they reflect Christ. And alas, there are other professing Christians who walk into the room and everybody kind of take, takes a step back. Do you know, you, you know, all of us must know somebody who is to us a take-a-step-back person. You know, you bump into them and every instinct in you is to, you know, take a shimmy round. You, you're maybe in the grocery store and you, and you see her or him and you weren't going to have conflicts, but you're now destined to have conflicts. Um, and you see... Peter understands that the, 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 Lord wants, the Lord wants Christians who are salt and light, who light up the room, and yet at the same time expose the darkness, uh, whose presence preserves, um, but also stings. And, and so, if we understand this, he's saying, We'll be safeguarded. We, we won't be surprised. Remember how well, remembers the wrong word, but those of you who know one, Peter, remember, later on he uses exactly the same kind of language. He says, now, the people you used to hang around with are surprised. They can't understand why you're no longer with them in the things that they have always done with you. And Peter uses the same language to say, so don't be surprised by the fiery trial. But so many Christians are surprised so that we complain. Do you know there's not a single word of complaint in the whole of the New Testament about the fact that Christian believers will suffer? Indeed, the very reverse in First Peter What's your response to the reality of suffering? You rejoice at the privilege of it. So you're not surprised by suffering. Why are you not surprised by suffering? Because you know that you are a surprise to those who are not Christians. They cannot work out what makes you tick. And the truth of the matter is, of course, you've discovered the reality of the gospel. Remember that very famous allegory that, Pl that Plato uses in, in Book 7 of the Republic? That should wake you up if you're a little bit sleepy on this very humid night. Um, where he's, he's trying, Greek philosopher, he's trying to, he's trying to work his way towards, so what what is reality and how do we relate to it? And he has this very famous allegory in which he, 
he, he sees people who are in a cave, a dark cave, and they're, they're chained in every respect so that they face a wall. So they, they can't turn round. But behind them, there is a fire. And there are these like, almost like puppeteers who are, who are showing them things reflected by the light of the fire onto the wall. And because they know no other world, they think that's reality. And then one of them escapes and he gets outside. And he discovers that all of this has been false. That it's not been real at all. And the strange thing is when he, when he gets outside, he, at first he's blinded by the light. And then when he comes in, he's, he's struggling with the darkness. And what do the people who are in the cave say? Those of you who love C.S. Lewis, he, he kind of steals a little bit of Lewis when he deals with the dwarf. I mean, Lewis steals a little bit of Plato when he deals with the dwarves, doesn't he? You know, they, th- they think they're in a dirty old stable. And Aslan provides this fabulous food, and they, they think it's stinking, rotten stuff. And you see, they can't see. And this is what Peter is saying. He's saying, you, you are like someone who has escaped from the cave and come back into it and said, Hank Williams and all, you've seen the light. You have said, once I was blind, now I see. What's the response in the cave? You are blind. You can't see. Why don't you join in with us? We're having a great time. We're having a good time. We're free. You know, we say often enough, David says often enough to us that uh, this liberal society in which we live, this tolerant society in which we live, you know, that has become such a mantra of our politicians. We live in a tolerant society. And yet, as Christians, we discover that the one reality of which the tolerant society becomes most intolerant is the Christian gospel. Excuse me for using this as an illustration. If some politician suggests that one of the best things we can do for our youngsters in high school actually going on now for primary school, is if we're teaching them anything, we should teach them sexual abstinence outside of marriage. Why is all hell let loose? You mean our children are old enough to go to war for our country? To go through rigorous military training for our country? And yet all hell lets loose if you suggest self-discipline in one area of life. What lies behind that? It is that there is a God and goddess in this world who must be worshipped, must be worshipped. You dare not speak against her. And that's idolatry. And so you, 
you, you cannot live a godly life as a youngster in this world without people thinking there's something strange about you. And in a sense, Peter is saying, once you've settled that, if you're a young person, once you have settled that, I am going to live for Christ and for His glory, and if people think I'm strange, Jesus is making me more and more normal. Let the chips fall where they may, and your life will be gloriously liberated and much of the muck that is hurled in your direction will simply be like water off a duck's back because you understand that you're dealing with people who live in a cave and all they've seen is the false idols that have been projected onto the cave walls by the evil one. And they've thought, that's what's real, that's what I want. And Peter is saying, you know, if you, if you understand you don't really belong to this world, if you can live the way I lived in the elevator and really enjoy the fact that you've got a different accent. You know, when David said Scottish accents, you know, I've spent half my life saying to people, I'm not the one with the accent. <laughs> I talk quite normal. It's Yusians that have got the accent. We've all got accents. But you see, as we grow as Christians, we, we are those who have the accent of those who have been with Jesus. And that's all that really matters. And yes, you know, as parents or grandparents or great-grandparents, we're, we're profoundly concerned about the way in which our youngsters will face marginalization in a new way, in a way that when we were youngsters, we saw in places like China and Soviet Russia, not getting the jobs, not getting the promotion, not being allowed to speak, being marked out. But you know, when Christ is everything to us and we've settled that, then yes, it may hurt us, but Jesus is with us. And, and we're always able to say, as I, I, I often have said, this isn't really about you, it's about Him. And you see, at the end of the day, some of these people, they used to think Christians were strange. And some Christians are strange. God uses Christians who are strange as well as Christians who aren't so strange. But you see, why would anyone be attracted to the Lord Jesus Christ if the people who belong to him were no different from anybody else? He would become valueless. But you see, when we understand that we we don't belong the way we once thought we belonged, but we belong to another world, a better world, a purer world, an eternal world, a God-centered world, a Christ-filled world, a Holy Spirit-energized world. Then it's a lot easier, isn't it, to understand. People will not understand me. 
And you see that in a way that's part of the romance of being a Christian in a non-Christian world is I understand who I am. You don't understand who I am. How long is it going to be before the Spirit begins to prompt you to ask, what is it that really makes him tick? Because he's got something I've never seen anywhere else. And then, of course, there's this third and last thing that he mentions. We need to know that we're no longer the people we once were. We need to be aware that we no longer belong the way we once did. And the third thing is that we need to be convinced that it's no longer man's judgment on us, but God's judgment that really matters. And you know, that's a great deliverance. The, the one thing that the unbeliever fears to think about most of all, namely that he or she lives under the judgment of God, is actually both in Peter and in Paul and in many ways in parts of Jesus' teaching, it's, it's, the, it's the wonder to which the Christian looks forward. On that day when he will say, well done, good and faithful servant, and he'll lavish gifts upon his children, and we'll say, but I didn't do anything to deserve this. And he'll say, of course you didn't do anything to deserve this. These are all the gifts of grace I give to you as I judge and assess your life. When I live for eternity, as I, as I live under the judgment of God, as I, as I, as I think to myself, what, what would the Lord Jesus think about me here? As I remember him saying, if you're ashamed of me and of my words, then I may be ashamed of you and of your words before my heavenly Father. But if you're unashamed of me and of my words, I will confess you before my Father is in who is in heaven. What an amazing thing. That is perhaps tremblingly inside we confess Jesus. What should we think if all hell is let loose on us? We should think that they are at the right hand of the Heavenly Father. The Lord Jesus is turning to His Father and saying, do you, do, you see, do you see that young one in school in Dundee, that student, that person who belongs to St. Peter's in Dundee? You remember St. Peter's in Dundee, Heavenly Father? I want to confess Him before you. Isn't that amazing? that the same language would be used about the way Jesus speaks to his Father about you as is used for the way you speak about Jesus to others because you love him and you're proud of him. And he says to his Father, look, look at her. She's, she's weak-kneed within, but she's She's speaking for me. She's standing up for me. Look at her, Father. Wow, look at her. And she's ours. And we'll keep her. And she'll be kept by the power of God for the inheritance that is still to be revealed in the last time. And the unbeliever, you know, as we meet people who are unbelievers who live in this pagan world, we not only see something about ourselves that they don't see, we see something about themselves that they don't see. It's like Plato's cave all over again. 
we see the manipulations of the evil one that's blinded their eyes, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. And we see that one day they will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And then they will understand that all of their past time was wasted. And that too gives us not only the courage for Jesus to stand, even if it means suffering, but the compassion of Jesus to stand, because it may be, humanly speaking, the means of their salvation. Now, many of us, perhaps all of us, have failed in so many, so many different ways. And that's why Peter comes along. He, he doesn't need to say it. Everybody, but everybody, who knows anything about the story of Jesus of Nazareth knows that it was just here that Simon Peter failed. And it was just here that Jesus forgave him and enabled him to stand the next time and to encourage others. So let's take courage from this teaching and live for his glory in a very, very pagan world. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and power, for its grace, for the way in which it understands us better than we understand ourselves, certainly better than any preacher could understand us or any counselor or therapist could help us. You get right down through your word into our inmost being, and you show us who we are, but you also show us who our Savior is, and that he is able to keep us, and that he is keeping for us the glory that is yet to come. And so we pray, when we are weak, give us strength, and when we are cowardly, give us courage. And as we live this week, give us opportunity to stand and to confess our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk for information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.